0: I was just putting, um, you know, I think this call inspired me a little bit to to put some paint on a canvas. I've been working um, a larger painting for a while, and I haven't I haven't touched it um, for a couple of days. And a friend asked, "Are you are you gonna paint today?" This was, you know, over the last weekend, but it's in a phase where I hate the painting right now, yeah. and I told them it's like going to hang out with a friend that I hate or with someone that I hate. So right. I'm not sure when I when I'll be able to return. Do you ever experience that when it's like it's in a phase where I just I'm not happy with it?
1: Very much so. In fact, most of the arc of the production of a painting is in that that sort of um, controlled misery. Um, I I I start and I've been doing this for 47 years since I was 10 years old. So I'm really good at making a painting look look delicious and right quickly and then it devolves uh into total chaos and a mess for uh, months. and then at the very end sometimes i'm, I'm able to save it but mm. the, the key is to is to is to always walk out to the end of the diving board as far as you can without without tipping over and uh that to me is such a thrill um, no other job in the world i can think of uh, can one do that can one sort of uh, pray for mistakes and pray for uh for problems that don't necessarily need to be uh, solved.
0: So when you say walk to the end of the diving board, does that mean just willingly encounter that, that suck kind of thing? Yes.
1: Yes. To not deny it or resist it, but to welcome it as, 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 um, the, that Philip Gus needs to talk about the, the complete abject misery of, The process of making a painting and then at the end of the day when he had put in his nine hours or whatever it was he could go to a party with his friends or relax by the fire with his kids or have a cup of tea and feel totally relaxed and at ease because he did his job and our job is is never to to make a great body of work or a great painting our job as i see it is to simply show up every day and put in a dedicated allotment of time part of your life and with a beginning a middle and an end and then you go and you close your door so i always feel really satisfied if i just show up and work and i don't really worry anymore about um, the result.
0: that's beautiful it's definitely not the path of least resistance so i can see the challenges in entering that um i love that you can bring up you know some other artists or you can reference quotes along the way and i want to kind of encourage listeners first to um or I want to tell them about your YouTube studio visits where I encountered you first, which are so great. So I I recommend that everyone check those out. And there's a lot there kind of about you and your philosophy. And so I'm going to try to ask some questions today that perhaps touch on some of that, but I don't want to kind of repeat a lot of stuff that I've heard from you. I want to try to kind of poke a little bit further so hopefully I can do that um, but encourage people to see those and then also um, go to your Brian com, which is a beautiful website with all of your paintings and then a couple of books that you have I have read Clear Seeing Place which is which is great um, A Little Long Time which is coming from a um, interlibrary loan for me and then is there any is there another book um, earlier than that
1: yeah in 2008 Radius Books uh, published a monograph my first which was written by Martika Sawan, and she's a a very renowned art historian. And that book, unfortunately, is out of print and and fairly hard to find these days. But I am working on a fourth book, which will be a paperback, similar to Clear Seeing Place, which you just cited, and which will focus more on my tree drawings, which are more academically rendered and which I've done for, you know, since I was a little kid. Um, But I never show them. So this is a chance for me to feature you know a a curated group of those tree drawings and then um, sprinkle in some essays which are called from the videos which you so kindly um, complimented thank you
0: i'll be excited to see the the um this upcoming book because um i love looking back at kind of what's driving you or or the artist and i know those tree drawings are central to to what you do um you mentioned, you know, when you were 10 years old and I just this morning, I actually dropped my daughter off at school and she she has art for a special today and she goes to the same art room that I went to at Broken Ground School when I was in fourth grade. Um, along the way, I found sports and athletics and I had a couple of friends that could draw, Matt and Josh Craigie, And I couldn't draw and I just thought, OK, I'm I'm not creative and they are. Um, and I, I found a different path and, you know, I'm 42 now and I recently, when I was kind of turning 40, um, started finding more creativity and discovering that back into my life and started painting and different things. But how did you hold on to that and how how can others hold on to that throughout their life? And I, I think a lot of us lose it because of natural tendencies and roles and norms throughout society.
1: I have to, first of all, give uh, kudos to my parents who were uh, very practical minded, but my dad was a a sort of a a poet on the side. He was an attorney by trade, but he was always a really sensitive poet and writer. And he sort of ran interference for me because at, you know, about eight years old, I, I, I discovered that I could draw and I could draw not just what was in front of me, but I could draw. Just freely from imagination, whatever would come into my mind. So he sort of would would um, you know ply me with drawing materials and pastels and watercolors. When my mom, who was the daughter of Albanian immigrants, was more practical and wanted me to consider things like architecture and radiology. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I, I think I think to go back to the the kernel of the question, I think that that the the public. Although it means well and and society as a whole mean well, I think they do an enormous disservice to creative people by pressuring people to think that they have to be great all the time, that they have to continue to evolve and to aim for, for greatness. And that's not the case at all. It was the comedian Steve Martin who said, it's easy to be great. It's hard to be good. And anybody can be great once in a while. Anybody can hit it out of the park now and then. It's much harder to be consistently good time after time. And you realize later on that time, not the market, determines quality in an artist. So the most important thing is to, is to if you feel like you have a facility for any creative endeavor, just simply dedicate time to it. You don't have to be great. You don't have to perform uh, compared to other people, you don't have to to you know make your mark and all that stuff that art school pressures us into. Um, you just simply have to dedicate, um, let it steal some of your precious time on this earth. I was um, terrible at sports. Um, we had high school basketball, and I went to a small high school, so to to be socially conscious, my my mom encouraged me to play basketball, and I was third string, and I sat on the bench. And uh, I learned a lot about, uh, about how, to, um, how to carry oneself uh, in, in the creative arts. I learned that, that unlike the arts, basketball is a meritocracy. Unless you're really, really good, you're going to ride the pine, which is what I did. Uh, And the art world, which is a clown car, is not a meritocracy. I remember thinking that just because an artist has a show in a museum or a gallery that they must be really good. And it turns out they aren't. They're really, really lucky. Um, If that artist is still showing in 25 years, then the chances are that they're really, really good. But none of that matters in the end. What matters is that you do what you can to feel the most like yourself. And I think we're often conditioned into trying to perform for others or to feel like we think other people want us to feel and not feel like ourselves. Um, uh, An artist is someone who is really good at being themselves and and you don't have to be great to do that.
0: Nicely said. Um, you give away a lot of the tricks of your trade. You open up your studio, um, especially on those YouTube videos. You know, we can we can see what you got there. We can we can see all your your tricks and your tools that you're using. Um, a lot of artists, especially, you know, musicians. I I remember a movie. I think it's inside Lewin Davis. Um, they talk about this a little bit, but there's a mystique that they want to maintain and they want to you know hide some things from from others. Um, Possibly to create some demand and and wonder, um, but also maybe to to um, not allow people to gain what you have. Um, but you seem right. to be open and and um, perhaps believe in an abundance of that everyone can get theirs, and I can I can still get mine. Um, can you talk about why why do you expose yourself like that?
1: Because I I think the the the. That art is driven by generosity. And I think the, the more that I can share what I've discovered and learned um, with other people, I think we're all the beneficiaries of that effort. I think it can make if it can just graft on to one person, whether it's someone you know across the street and on you know on Sixth Avenue here in New York City or someone in India, and I get emails from people from all oh. of the above. Um, then the world I think is a better place if you can just reach one person. So what I did with the videos was I, I, the art world has become increasingly competitive and isolated. And I had really, really great teachers coming up at the college of Charleston and then the school of visual arts afterwards in grad school. And I'm simply just doing what I was taught. They were generous with their time and with their knowledge. And I feel like if I can use technology specifically YouTube, um, then I can tell people two things. This is what I do, and this is how I do it. And if I show you um, on a local level uh, where I'm from, what my studio looks like from the floor all the way to the ceiling, show you my palettes, how they're laid out, where the brushes are, where the mediums are, what I buy, what I why I buy it, what I don't buy, um, I feel like that makes me a better painter. Um, because I feel like I'm connected and somehow to, um, uh, uh, you know, there's so many creative people. Uh, if I can do anything to be of help, I feel like it just makes me a more seasoned uh, and, and well-rounded artist. Um, we're here for such a short time. I think it's so important to to share. And I, I'm okay with exposing, you know, all of the tricks, because I am the only you know, owner of my experience and my paintings will dip into that well over and over again. So they're always going to look like me because I'm trying to tell the truth. And the greatest thing an artist can do is tell the truth, your truth, not the truth that you think someone else wants to hear or someone wants you to tell, but your truth. And I think we often are encouraged or or conned into thinking that it has to be something profound and something um. Uh, that sounds like you're the smartest person in the room i'm never the smartest person in the room i admit that and i want to show all of the pimples and all the unglamorous underbelly of this business and it is very much a business so in each each episode i try to focus on a practical business thing some career advice then some technical things, how I do, you know, certain effects or certain parts of the painting. And then some philosophical or sort of travel journal things that um, allow viewers a glimpse into what feeds me um, and, and what allows me to be, uh, a, you know, an American landscape painter. And um, the response has been fantastic, far beyond what I ever thought it would be. It's been over 10 years I've been doing these and 84 episodes and I have loads and loads more um, content. So they're a lot of fun to do. They're kind of like cooking shows where you show all of the ingredients go together and then at the end you get a little taste of the meal.
0: (laughs) Nice. I hear a little joke in that last line, too. And I actually wanted to reference um, your videos again because I sense there's a lot of professionalism with what you do and and. In your content, there's a ton of art history, um, and you certainly give a lot of respect to those that came before you. Um, but there's also some great loud belches that, honest, they make me laugh out loud. I, yeah. I think in this recent episode you included one, which made me so happy, after yes. maybe after a hot dog and um, down in the street. Um, but I just love the, the contrast of that, um, and I want to talk about contrast a little bit more as we go along. Um, a little story I I knew of an an artist, um. That I I enjoyed these paintings. I'm not going to name the artist I I really enjoy the paintings, but then I saw a video of um, the showing. And the artist did was dressed in kind of tattered clothes and painted up and did this kind of dark interpretive dance. Um, to to the viewers that went there and. I was immediately turned off. I, I, I just immediately said, I'm, I, I can't like those paintings anymore. <coughs> now that's just me and I don't want to insult anyone who, who is into that type of thing, but I just wanted to hear why did you paint those and how did you paint them? Um, I've been to one of your showings in, in Cape Cod and you know there was a slideshow talk, you were dressed in a suit, clean shaved. And along with the mess of your studio and the belches and, and the jokes, there was certainly a sense of professionalism, um, so there's definitely a contrast there. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Um, I, I have great respect for for our profession, for our craft, for our industry, and I was brought up um, to to you know to dress the part, to to be clean cut, to be well spoken. Um, I am a student of art history and still am, and always will be, um, and I. I when I'm in public at an opening or a lecture, I always, I always, I want to give it the respect um, that I think it deserves. And that is um, dressing like a pro. Uh, I, I am a professional. And I think there's a, real, there's a real great difference when an amateur becomes a professional. When you decide that this is what you do and this is what will take the most amount of your time in your life. Doesn't matter how much money you make, that's, that's irrelevant. It's a mindset of how you how you the way that you wake up in the morning and you go do your job regardless of how good it is. Uh, it's like an airplane pilot uh, is not judged by how many exotic locations he or she has flown to. They're judged only by their flight hours and it's many it's really about flight hours. so so for for the videos, um, I, I try to present. I tell the truth. This is what I look like. These are the clothes that I wear. I burp just like everybody else. I do stupid, silly jokes. Um, it's as truthful as the way I really am um, to to just expose that to uh, to the viewer. And um, also, you know, when I wake up, I, I want to think about work. I don't want to think about putting effort into wearing black satin and, you know, with mascara and, and jewelry and all that stuff. I want to just simply wake up, open the drawer. I have all the same color t-shirts, all the same type of jeans, same socks, same shoes and same belts. So there are no decisions whatsoever for me. It's effortless. I just simply wake up and then I'm in the mindset for my job. So uh, it's the path of least resistance in terms of presentation. And then in terms of just the sheer joy that I get to come do this every single day, it's like better than tasting bubble yum for the first time. And I wanna show that to the viewer. So um, so I try to look good when I do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very nice. Um, staying on the the topic of contrast, um, a lot of your paintings, if we could you know, talk about those a little bit, what I see is a, a huge amount of contrast and color and that that seems to be what's intriguing to me. And then if I think about life, I, I love, contrast. I love sipping hot coffee with, you know, hot pie with cold ice cream. Yeah. Um, I love the contrast there. But there's, so there's, I, I think there's a way to live um, where we can discover this more often. I feel that a lot of us go through life too often without any contrast. It's mundane, it's routine. Um, but, but I also see it in your paintings. So, um, and I think you've talked about the front of house experience and the back of house experience. And I think there's something there too. If you could talk about that a little bit.
1: I'll start with contrast because uh, it, it defined the very way that I learned how to see as a child. Um, and I've written about this in both books that, that I grew up in a resort town, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, which has two faces. One face is a honky tonk resort with neon you know, blinking signs. And carnival banners and uh, and arcades, surrounded by the other face, which is some of the most hauntingly beautiful landscapes on the East Coast. So I, I, the one thing I was good at as a kid, was paying attention, and I I saw something miraculous happening right in front of me, even at ten years old, that there were these two contrasting landscapes one natural and one artificial in a head-on collision at 200 miles an hour and they collided so violently that they produced this third thing and it's that third thing that I've been trying to apprehend uh, you know for 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 47 years and still haven't done it but each time I get a little bit closer so th- the idea that that you said like the idea of walking through life um, with contrast. Uh, I like to talk about the notion that that we walk through life broken in half in two parts, focused either on our thoughts or our bodily sensations. And rarely are we fully present in both. Um, Art, especially painting, teaches us how to be human because a painting is whole. It's two things at the same time. It's piles of color, little skins of of pigment, and at the same time, it's an imaginary world into which we project our consciousness. Um, And I always cite the, the example of Rembrandt. If you look at a Rembrandt from the side especially, you see mounds of creamy, buttery oil paint. And then if you look at it from the head on, it's suddenly a cheek or a nose, and then all of a sudden it's creamy oil paint again. It's, be- it's both things simultaneously. So that notion of shifting from the outer world to the inward world, or to put it more directly, the unnatural and the natural, um, the natural being the observable real world that we live in and walk through. The unnatural world is the idealized version that we put through our psyche, which comes out the other side, and that's what creates a work of art. Um, A painting has no reason to exist whatsoever. Uh, A painting is like a ship in a bottle. It serves no purpose. It doesn't heat homes, it doesn't purify water. But like a ship in a bottle, a painting is the most like itself. It's eternally in the present tense and its only job is to be a painting. And I find it endlessly fascinating that we come back to it over and over again, this completely useless, non-existent thing that we simply can't live without. Because I think deep down, it reminds us that it is possible to be whole. And we all thirst for that. Um, It's what John Keats writes about in Ode to a Grecian Urn, the notion that the urn is two things at the same time. It's a world in which the figures dance around through eternity, um, full of fragrance and frivolity and silken, you know, joy and happiness. And then it's a frozen world, which we can never penetrate. We're always on the outside looking at it. So the idea that it's two things at the same time, I think, is an, uh, an endlessly fascinating dichotomy. And I think it's what keeps us going. And it's that, to go back to the very beginning, it's a problem that doesn't need a solution. And it's a question that doesn't need an answer. And I think it's so different from everything else in the world. Um, you can't measure a work of art by a quantitative analysis or a cost-benefit you know, um, reduction. You measure it by the complexity and the depth of feeling which you experience in its presence and that to me is is enough and um sometimes the greatest thing are 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 the most simple the things that you stand in front of and just simply let them wash over you
0: is this what you what you mean when you said um the content is in the work when you've kind of this is a little bit hard for me to understand where you say that you know the piece of work um is the same as the content it's not trying to be something different can you help me understand that a little bit more and, and is this similar to what you're saying there
1: yes and i think it applies you know it it what i like to say is that that if you're if you're using paint to represent a window then the paint is is in the service of that representational act of that image of a window but if you think of it as a brushstroke, or a blob of color, or a mark, a skin of paint. First, then I think it's it's richer because it requires the presence of the viewer to make the window. Um, um, Stephen Sondheim in in um, Sunday in the Park with George, there's a great lyric: um, "Look, I made a hat where there never was a hat." Um, so the idea that 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 the image and the and the object have to be the same thing. The object is the surface, it's the physical paint. It's the skins of oil on the flat surface. And the image is what all of those things are representing. And I do believe that we all represent something in our paintings. I think Philip Buston was right, he said, we are image makers and we are image ridden that painting is impure that we're always trying to represent something whether a painting is a photorealistic picture of cars on on Lexington Avenue or if it's a highly abstracted you know non objective geometric um uh image you're still the artist is still trying to represent something whether it's it's a recognizable image like a car on the street or whether it's just Um, a a highly articulated surface, um, the, the paint still has to be the primary driver. Otherwise it doesn't need to be a painting. I think a painting should appear as if it could only exist if it were painted. If the painting looks like something that could have been a photograph or a print or a film or some other medium, then it really doesn't generate the heat that a real painting should. I think a painting should feel like it can only exist in that moment as paint. So it has—it doesn't really matter if it's recognizable or if it's not recognizable. Uh, and that's what I mean by the the image and the object have to be the same thing. That the paint isn't in service of looking like something. The paint is itself first, and then you can get the something. And you can always go back and forth between that physical brushstroke and what it might replicate or represent. Um, um, I talk a lot about in the videos and books about the notion of intent and execution, that what is your intention and how clearly is it executed in your material? Um, They should be the same thing. The material should never be in service of your intention. You should work until the intention and the, the execution of it are the same thing. So when I come in here and paint, I don't think about the landscape or rivers or moss or mud or oyster shells, all the things that made me a painter, I think of paint and that comes first. The work comes first. Um, you never want to get inspired and then work. You want to work in order to get inspired. So it's that flipping of the two. Um, I know that was kind of convoluted, but I hope that makes sense.
0: Now that's very helpful. And one thing that I've struggled with, um, I think, coming late later to painting is and and also hearing your you know your articulation of of intent and and where you where you abstract from that that deep um southern carolina coast um but i struggle with where what is my intent i don't know what i want to paint or or where it's coming from um so can you help us you know maybe listeners or even me um you know how did you come to that one thing? How did you find that? And then maybe someone that is coming to it later, how, how, can, we, how can we encounter that?
1: Uh, you have to shut off the ticker tape of, of constant demands and advice and lectures and symposia and workshops and all of the noise that comes from the outside. And you have to simply close your eyes and imagine your 10 year old self Standing in front of what made you a painter or an artist in the first place. And it's often really, really simple. And I always advise artists to narrow down your work. Describe what you're doing in five words or less. And it's, it's, it's both hard and easy at the same time. Albert Einstein said if you can't explain it simply you don't understand it well enough. So we're often conditioned or conned into thinking that you have to have you know a four-page dissertation with with words like pamplepest and "limnal" and uh, identity and all of those artsy fartsy words uh, when you can just simply say I like to eat barbecue and I like to watch magic. Um, Those are two things that that uh, made me an artist in the first place. Really simple things. And then from there, once you localize that to the size of a postage stamp, then you magnify that postage stamp to the size of a movie screen. That's really what an artist's job is, is to to figure out what makes you, you, and then intensify that. So you first have to limit your reach or limit your perspectives down to that 10-year-old self, and then you intensify that. And I think most people try to go the opposite direction. Um, my five words are standing here while looking there. Uh, just simply standing in one place, feeling the wet mud of the South Carolina low country under my sneakers, and then looking over there. And knowing that while I stand here, I can experience that physicality of being in a place and casting a shadow across the ground. And I have to imagine being way over there because I'm standing here. So I'm in two places at the same time, one in my imagination, the other one underneath my, my size 13 sneakers. So that is the core of what I do. And I've made a career out of that very simple notion. Um, it doesn't have to be complicated. And I think people all, all the time feel like they have to be in order to get noticed or to appear as if they're doing relevant Uh, work. Otherwise, there's that fear of mediocrity. And um, the most important thing is to know when to quit. Um, My mom was a big fan of Phyllis Diller, the, the groundbreaking comedian from the, I guess, 50s, 60s, 70s. And she would sit us down when a Phyllis Diller special would come on. And I remember Phyllis Diller saying, whenever something got too hard, quit. If the audience doesn't find that you're funny, simply quit and do something else. So when I find that I'm not getting it in a painting when it's just not there, I simply put my brushes down and I leave and I do something else. Um, It it should be that simple um, that I'm never in search of that untouchable, um, mysterious thing, that it is very much a job that I come here and do. And uh, if I need to, I quit. Um, Stampedes would never end without one buffalo that quits.
0: Lots of gold in there. Thank you for that. And if you ever need to borrow some sneaks, I'm size 13 too, so we'll get there together. I was 13 as uh, so. <laughs> Nice. Um, I don't want to lead you here with a question at all, but do you think by painting you have discovered, you mentioned consciousness earlier, um, have you discovered a deeper consciousness or or at least potentially a deeper self-awareness through the act of painting?
1: That, that's a wonderful and rich question, which I think about often. And the, the answer is uh, uh, a, a resounding yes. Um, Glenn Gould, who you cited at the very beginning and who is my artistic idol, um, a Canadian pianist and philosopher who lived from 1932 to 1982, said that the purpose of art is the gradual lifelong construction of a state of wonder and serenity. And I've always used that as my my compass or my lighthouse. Um, So that slow accretion, that slow building of a way of seeing the world and a way of of living in the world um, is is what I have learned from this this incredible journey of of being an artist, of being a creator. Uh, I had a revelation in front of a Rembrandt about a month and a half ago uh, which I've I've cited in some of the recent videos and which will be in my new book um, I was looking at his self-portrait from 1660 it's one of the last ones with this this rosy cheeked teary-eyed carcass of a human being staring back at you and I realized that in my 20s and 30s I cared all the time about what people thought of me and then in my 40s, I decided that I don't care what people think about me. Now I'm in my 50s and I realize that no one thought about me. So what I learned was that I don't take myself too seriously. I do what makes me feel the most like myself. If it if it if it has a resonance with someone else, that's a wonderful thing, and that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. But if I never sold another painting or never was you know, in a show where someone could see the paintings, I would be just as happy because um, I never intended to do this in the first place. I never knew that one could be an artist or have a career as an artist. I simply felt the most like myself when I was drawing or painting. And that high is something that I've sustained and which continues to mystify me. And uh, again, when you work from the inside out rather than from the outside in, you know how to become your own best friend. So that is, I think what this journey has taught me is to be my own best friend.
0: Through becoming your own best friend and that, that discovery, a lot of it sounds like it's somewhat simple or happy and, you know, finding all the good things that you like to do. But I imagine, I I mean, at least in my journey, there's been a lot of actually suffering and finding out what you're not good at. And, you know, where you don't belong type of thing. Is there any pain and suffering in this uh, for you?
1: All the time. All the time. Um, It's, you know, uh, it's mostly suffering and misery with little glints of of joy and reverie. Um, But I, I believe and have believed for a long time that the source of all art is sadness. Um, that an artist is someone who reveres sadness and by sadness I don't mean misery or melancholy but I mean that that sense of longing uh, for something which shall never come which shall never be apprehended and there's a feeling of loneliness and a feeling of want and unfulfilled longing and certainly uh, not every painting you know, is successful. I destroy far more than I keep. If you saw my studio, you would see the floor is a couple of feet thick of mistakes of scraped off paint on the floor. So even though what, what I, what I say sounds all, you know, happy go lucky and like everything is, is, um, is, uh, is, you know, you know, successful, you know, in, in terms of uh, uh, beginning, middle and end, it, still one has to to learn how to savor the other half, which is the sadness part. It takes more muscles to frown than it does to smile. And I think that's because we wanna persevere through pain and suffering by resisting. And I think that notion of resistance, um, which has been written about in many books before me, uh, is what drives us. That, that, That feeling of pushing back against something and of girding yourself or of creating an insulation around yourself Um, which takes a long time. And there have been setbacks and there have been, uh, you know, miseries and disasters and all sorts of things in my life. But I, I, I simply show up every single day and I get to work. And I know that that schedule is the real definition of success. Success is curiosity and effort. Those are the only two things you can
0: control. Thank you for that. I'm glad that you mentioned longing and kind of melancholy. I've been studying this a bit. I'm I'm really drawn to sad songs. And, uh, you know, Chopin's nocturnes are, are some of my favorite type of classical music. Um, I'm reading a book right now by Susan Cain called Bittersweet, which touches on this. I'm hoping it will kind of help me um, learn a little bit more about that. But and, and I'm also a hopeless romantic. I i think the best thing can work out in the end um and it never does yeah. but i i actually love that feeling of longing and yearning and i hope you take this as a compliment that you know i feel that when i look at your paintings um can you talk a little bit more about you know why are we drawn to that or maybe maybe you don't feel necessarily drawn to that i'm not sure um but why why does some of us feel that um and how do you how do you create that in your paintings if you know how to <laughs>
1: I think I think as artists we have we have antennae in our heads and I think we have an extra organ in our chest, which makes us feel more deeply I think than people who are are not artists. Um, I think you have to be born an artist. You can certainly teach technique and 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 philosophy and all those things, which certainly help. But I think we we come with original equipment and we come with one instruction manual. And the important thing is not to lose that instruction manual, to maintain it and to always be true to oneself, uh, even in the face of of abject misery. Uh, I too am a hopeless romantic. Uh, I was just listening to the four last songs of Richard Strauss, which I recommend to you all if you've not heard them. I did a whole cycle of of paintings uh, based on those four songs back in 1993. And um it, it is an entire universe put into four movements, um very melancholy, very uh elegiac, um, and really everything you need to be a human being, um, which I know is a lot to say. But uh I think as as artists, though we um we have to we have to see more deeply and feel more deeply. And Van Gogh writes about this in his letters. He says uh, the sadness will last forever and you can see it in every single brushstroke that he's after something which he will never uh, achieve or realize and and I know that I never will get it right. But I also know that that's not the point. Um, the point is to keep showing up and trying keep hacking away at that gigantic iceberg that sits in the middle of my room every now and then a piece chips off and I get a painting. but. I know that that iceberg will still sit there in the middle of the room. And that's um, that's kind of a good feeling to me, um, that I'm doing something that um, I'll never master, uh, that I'll keep trying, and that is an attached, like a link in a chain, to a long tradition of artists who came before me and a long tradition of artists who will come after me. And I'm just simply a part of that, that thread. And that's kind of a nice feeling that, uh, that I don't take myself too seriously and that I can just um, uh, uh, try in vain to do, this, to, to do this thing, to make these things. Uh, human beings make art so that we have an excuse to stare at each other. Um, when you look at a Shakespeare play or a Neil Simon play or you listen to a Bob Dylan song, all we're really doing is trying to get out of ourselves and see the world through someone else's eyes And that's really at the core of what we do. And for a moment, if you can see through someone else's eyes, you are granted empathy and you can see the world in a slightly different way than you did before. And if you do that over time, I think it will make you a more human human being.
0: Nicely said. Um, I think within your work, you have a deep focus, you know, on those icebergs and, and your work ethic, you are showing up and you talk about this a lot in your um, and your content, and, and I love seeing people do that. Um, there's a small business in Concord, New Hampshire called Puppy Love, and they, they just do hot dogs, and I just love it. It's this little hole-in-the-wall business. It's the smallest shop on Main Street, and then in the summer, they pull out the cart, and, they, and I just always respected that they just do hot dogs, and they do it really well. Right. Um, on the other side of that, though, I'm totally different than that. I need to I'm a jack of all trades, but then you know they say master of none. I like to try a bunch of different things, yeah. and I don't feel that I can stay focused on that one thing. Um, can you talk about your feelings around that that type of thing?
1: Uh, I think it was I think it was Duke Ellington who said the wise musicians play what they can master. Um, I've always been uh, the the kind of person that can only do one thing at a time. And I was fortunate that I discovered that thing when I was 10 years old, and I've only ever wanted to do that thing. And I've been fortunate and blessed enough to be able to do that. And I know that's not, not the case for everyone. And there's certainly nothing wrong with trying a bunch of different things. Um, that's how you discover what what it is that really, that really chimes uh, or hums to be more, more exacting that has a resonance for you um and some people may go on and on and discover it very late in life and some people discover it early it really doesn't matter when what matters is is the depth of uh, the depth of that hum or the how long that chime of the bell resonates when you find exactly what it is that you want to do and that's why i always think it's important to um, to limit one's perspectives to try to do one thing or two things, and then get really good at it. And I love, as you noted the the hot dog stand, I love any vocation or occupation um, that is mechanical and that simply has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I always think that the, the greatest job I ever had in all of my history of, of just sort of meaningless jobs was a dishwasher when I was 16 years old because you take a dirty dish, you put it into soap, you scrub it, then you put it into a clean rinsing agent, and then you wash it with clean water, and it comes out clean. So there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I know every single time it's gonna work. Um, I'm gonna start with dirty and end with clean. And um, that's such a pure way to, um, to approach life. Um, so I know that when I come here, I'm gonna start my work at 9.30 in the morning and I'm gonna leave around 5.30. And that's really all I care about. I don't care if it's any good. I don't care if a show does well or if I never do any more shows. Um, I only care that I put in that that um, uh, several hours each day. Um, and uh, But I do think it is important to try a lot of different things. And I always advise um, younger painters and students to to copy everything you can and everything you get wrong and up being your style
0: got it thank you um before we wrap up here i want to talk about a couple more things one the the title of my podcast is called breathe upon waking and i'm i'm working on a project that is kind of focused on taking action um, instead of thinking and and wondering and waiting um, and you actually mentioned taking action earlier um, another thing i think is connected to this is um, folks with writer's block or you know, painter's block where they don't know what to do. But I, I never understood that or believed in that because I think you can just put any mark down on right. the canvas. It So there's nothing stopping you. I think there's a a perfection piece there where maybe folks think this mark needs to be perfect. Therefore, I'm not going to put it down. So I, I think through the action um, we can learn and then build and go from there. Can you talk about taking action before thinking maybe?
1: Yes, Uh, do first think second. Uh, The worst thing a painter can do is analyze as he or she is putting a mark down because that makes you self-conscious and anything self-conscious as Ray Bradbury said uh, is lousy. And I think that was his word Um, uh, because then you're in the service of what you think other people like and that is the kiss of death to an artist. You paint for an audience of one. You're not only the painting's maker; you're also its first looker, and I think it's it's so important to um to uh, uh, to to not be aware of of trying to to be great, which we talked about before, and also thinking that other people actually care. I, I can I can promise you, no one cares what you or I do. No one cares if we screw up the painting, so go for it. Um, uh, th- th- At first, uh, if you're a writer, just spill words out onto a page. If you're a musician, just simply start making noise and then start to analyze it and craft it and edit it later. A painter, you should never be afraid of a white canvas. You just simply start. The ideas come out of the process itself. And I think uh, what we talked about before, people have that backwards. They think that you have to be inspired and lightning has to strike and then you go to work. Um, It's not the case at all. That's an amateur. A pro is someone who comes in at a certain time every single day, regardless of the results, and simply starts. Sometimes you get lightning and sometimes you don't. But if you're there working and your muscles are all perfused and hot, then you're going to be ready when that lightning strikes. Um, um, So... uh, the first thing I do, here's a little exercise to, uh, to put that into practical terms. The first thing I do in the morning is I open my eyes and I swing my legs out of bed onto the floor and I sit there on the corner of the bed and I don't do anything. I make no decisions whatsoever and I just sit. And then miraculously, I stand up and then I go in and brush my teeth and I start my day. But I don't make a decision to do that. And it's, what's interesting about that is because I've done it since I could sleep in a big boy bed, um, I don't think about it. You just simply get up, and your muscle memory has trained you to do that thing. So there's no analysis. There's no oh my god, am I doing it right? Or is someone you know is it what people expect? It's just simply what I do, and I like to use that as kind of an analogy for uh, for my practice. Um, I make no decisions whatsoever. Ever. Um, there's no such thing as creativity. There are only your interests, and an artist is someone who is generous with theirs.
0: Very helpful. Brian, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time here. Um, If I'm ever in New York City and I try to get a cup of coffee with you, or if you ever come up through Concord, New Hampshire, maybe you can um, hit me up for one. But um, is there anything you're looking forward to in in 2023 or anything you're working on now? Or what are you you looking forward to?
1: Um, I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing my wife tonight at home and my kids who are in college uh, down in South Carolina uh we just saw it last weekend uh to seeing them again and it's and it's uh it's that simple